What's up, guys? It's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Launching this week on our podcast network is a new show from Van Lathan and Rachel Lindsay called Higher Learning. Two times a week, they'll be dissecting the biggest topics in Black culture, politics, and sports, and wade into the most important and timely conversations. The first episode is out now, so make sure to subscribe to Higher Learning with Van Lathan and Rachel Lindsay on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, hi, everybody. This is Brian Koppelman. And this is David Levine. We are the showrunners, co-creators of Billions, and this is Behind the Billions. Dave, how are you feeling about the whole calling it Behind the Billions thing? It's kind of growing on me. I like it. I, I, I think, think it's... it's- it's hilarious, and I can say that because we didn't um, it's we didn't come up with it. So no, I feel sort of Juliet, no ego. Yeah, Juliet Littman did, and I got to say I love it. It's uh, it's just so perfect for what we're doing here. And it um, it for me it evokes like all of the early um reality shows plus a little flavor of Behind the Candelabra, which is such a has such a special place in my heart. And Behind the Music, all of it. Yeah, I think yeah, it's yeah. got well, that's one got of the all early. of it. So we are here to talk about episode five, which um, y'all should have just watched, or um, I guess you could listen to this before, but I don't think that's the ideal. It's a way uh, to go. I'm not sure it's like the ideal user case, really. I think what you want is to watch the show first and then hear us talk about how we made it. But listen, you do you. That's all I care. Maybe you just like podcasts about shows and you don't even like shows. I don't know who you are listening. Maybe, maybe you've never watched a show in your life and you don't even know what they are really. You just walk around listening to podcasts about this thing and you imagine what a show is. And if that's your kink, hey, we don't kink shame, do we, Dave? No, that's not what we do. So this is episode five of season five. Yep. Episode is titled Contract. Episode titles aren't a big thing. People don't follow them, but we always come up with them. They only get sort of published in certain places on certain guides on cable yeah. systems. Yeah. Some people put the titles at the beginning of their shows. Robert King, we love Robert King and Michelle King, and they put the titles on their shows. And I, I get it. I, I think it's a cool thing to do. It's very but authorial, some, but I mean, we we do it and some people find it. But contract is something that we've wanted to write about for so long. And we've we've sort of hit it in many ways in many relationships and between characters and movies that we've written, stuff like that. But we really sort of went head on with acts defining it for Savion. In this, we would in always this hear about these New York, it's a very New York concept, Dave. And as you know, we almost wrote a movie about it a bunch of different times. Um, it's a New York contract. The way certain kind of New York person, often a man, uses this expression about another man, usually, he'll say something along the lines of, yeah, that guy, Har, uh, that guy, I'm thinking of one guy. I don't want to say the actual guy's <laughs> name. He was an aide de camp of a friend of ours. But, oh, jo- okay, yeah. Like, because uh, it's a nice thing to say. Uh, a guy will say, like, uh, you should meet Farkas. He understands contract. Yeah, can we count on him? Yeah, I've got contract with him. I have contract with him. He understands contract. <laughs> and that doesn't mean he understands contract law. That or that means- you sign something as we've covered. And correct. It doesn't mean you've signed <laughs> something. It, it, it means that that person understands something beyond the traditional transactional nature of favor trading. It means you have an understanding that there's going to be a long period of deep favor trading and the, and the accounts may never balance out, but you are each committed to the furtherance and bettering of 
the other person, their relationships and whatever they can do with the sort of idea that down the road, it's going to come back to benefit you. If you can find, we used to have a friend who would say, uh, if you could have 10 people who understand contract, you could be president of the United States. And, um, I don't know. We liked it when we heard it. We've kind of always believed it. Right, Dave? Yeah. And it, and it seems like it's more binding than any sort of signed document. If you um, take it seriously. Yeah. And, and I think there are people in, 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 in New York and other parts of the country who take it seriously. And we like the idea that Axe is introducing this concept to a young person, someone who would not necessarily, uh, who could understand what it meant. And Axe obviously believes this kid understands it. But um, uh, Axe spells it out, which I was I was happy to be able to that, that we were able to, to to do that and and put it on its feet. And the actor Akili understood it; he was terrific in that scene. I thought, yeah, it was great, absolutely. Um, and then another thing that we really wanted to do on this one was to further excavate Axe's childhood and sort of his upbringing. You know, we've we hinted around it a lot and we got into it a little bit in uh, the last episode. And this one, in a way, is like a two-parter of going back into where Axe had come from. Um, so, you know, that was some pretty fertile emotional terrain for us to get into. I love that you're talking about that, D, because it's uh, people often ask us what, what we had written before the series started, or they'll, they'll often ask, like, do you have a sense of what you're gonna do long-term? And, and we wrote up a very short document before we started. Really, we started writing it as we were writing the pilot, and then we kept updating it. And some of it had to do with what we were going to cover in the first two seasons. But then we did these character descriptions, backstories for all of the main characters. And on that first document, we talked about who Axe's mom was, where his dad was, what his childhood was like, knowing that be, you know, you do those things if, as a writer to help inform the way you're going to write what the character does now. You're not doing that so that you can reveal stuff later necessarily. But it and, and sometimes you might deviate from that later. You've learned something else about the character as you go. But but to me, the where Axe lands in this episode is totally hinted at in that document that was just for us five years ago. Um, and I love when stuff like that happens. It's part of why that character feels so real to us. Yes. Like the long-term intentions. And even though we, you know, it wasn't mapped out exactly when we were going to do it or if we were going to do it, it just felt like it was something that was, that we were moving towards in a way. And it finally happened, but you know, these were the, the things that we planned in the episode, but why don't we jump into script to screen and, and talk about things that like sort of changed and went differently from what we thought was going to happen. With this you know, I think this episode is, is, um, there, there was basically, uh, uh, only really one scene that changed for production that I can remember. You might remember more. No, but, I remember nothing of this. I always, I turn it over to you and it's like, I've, I've just walked into the tent. I've never heard anything. before. <laughs> so this main, is amazing. I don't even know what you're going to say. Well, the main one was an idea of yours that we had to shift. And, and, and it was originally Connery's brother. Jackie was going to be picked up while he was casing cars and ah. um Chuck and and Connery's brother were going to have the scene in a bar and um we ended up 
shifting it for production reasons. So you'll have a few different production reasons covered. Sometimes it's budgetary and sometimes it's because you're trying to organize your shooting day where you can accomplish a certain amount of things in a certain amount of time, um, which also then goes to budget. But um, although if we were shooting a Michael Mann movie, we would have spent a day watching Jackie watching cars and Chuck watching him from afar and approaching. On a TV series, you do have to be aware that things, something like that, which will end up only having five seconds of screen time if you shoot it, might not be worth shooting. Sometimes you need it, but in this case, we felt like we could justify because of the way Chuck and Saka run the office that we could justify bringing Jackie in. Does that well, yeah, and ring then, a bell and, to you? Yeah, yeah. Well, we condensed it from the whole thing happening at the fancy motor car place and then out on the street to we sent the... Uh, we just sent a still photographer over with the actor and shot like surveillance, like yes. the security camera footage from the dealership, shots of him looking sort of out of place and suspect. And, you know, as if they built a little case that they they had leverage over him to do what they wanted. So, I mean, I felt like the original idea was sort of honored and satisfied there. And, you know, as often the case, we got to save the bulk of our resources to shoot the scenes with the actors doing the stuff that mattered, like Chuck and Sacker bracing him and Jackie and Sacker having, you know, the first flickers of an attraction, all that kind of thing. You know, uh, even though we're going to get to guest actors, uh, the second we mentioned Jackie Connerty and Michael Raymond James, I mean, I feel we have to talk about them because one of the great things, D, that we get to do here is, is go back in time and, and, find a way to work with actors we've wanted to work with or almost worked with. And when we made our series Tilt, there was a moment when the deal with Eddie Cibrian almost didn't make. We wrote that part. We wrote Tilt for Eddie Cibrian. Eddie was always our guy, was always going to play Eddie Town. Hell, man, we even named the character Eddie <laughs> uh, for Eddie Cibrian. But there was a minute there where the network, which was ESPN, wasn't going to pay Eddie Cibrian the money. And they said, audition other people. And Michael Raymond James came walking in. And he crushed it. He was incredible. And you and I both felt really bad for him because he came in, he did everything he had to do to get the part. Except we wrote the part for Eddie Cibri and it was going to play the part as soon as they'd make a deal. And the network was trying to get leverage. And it's one of those like where Hollywood's unfair kind of things, right? Where you could tell Michael really prepared for that audition. I mean, I remember, don't you remember the audition like it was yesterday? Yeah, he, he crushed it. And then of course, you know, the network just eventually sort of caved to Eddie Cibrian's team's demands, paid him what he wanted. And it was like, yeah, it's the right thing to do. But, you know, so it was like um, Michael Raymond James kind of came in and auditioned for nothing in a way, but we never forgot. In fact, we even wrote him a letter afterwards telling him how great we thought he was and that one day we were going to work together. And then, um, you know, last season when he came into the show, when we we knew we wanted like a swaggering, um, like a, Brian Connerty brother from the streets, kind of a guy, the guy who took the other path. We immediately thought of him and he came and did it. It was perfect. Yeah. So we, we, well, I remember when we reached out to Michael for this, he remembered the letter we'd written him. And I have to say, every time that guy shows up on our set, I'm so happy. I think he is a masterful, he's masterful at crafting these characters and adds so much. There's this little acting moment in the episode written by Theo Travers, who's a terrific writer and came aboard the show this year. I just nailed this episode, a great writer. And um, 
But there's this little moment where Jackie uh, is talking about sending Chuck to go see his 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 brother, and he just sort of mentions it being old, you know, face to face, you know, and the way that that Jackie Connerty kind of enjoys that moment um, is just a masterful bit of. Uh, a masterful bit of acting. It's like Michael Raymond James is always in on the joke and he always lets you, the viewer, in on the joke with him. And it's uh, very difficult to do. If you've never seen the show Terriers, you should watch it. He was the star of that show and uh, along with Donna Logue. And and um, it's one season, really good show that that they did. Um, so mostly, I think, script to screen, we mostly shot what we wrote, what Theo wrote, and we all worked on together. Uh and as far as the story within the story, I think we talked about that a little bit. We wanted to write a story about, uh, well, we wanted to write about fathers and sons. We wanted to write about the legacy of absent fathers. So you have uh, you have Savion's father, you have Axe's father, and you have Chuck's father. And we wanted to structure something that showcased those relationships, which we then were able to do. Uh, we came up, it wasn't until um, we were about to shoot the, the scene with Senior in the hospital bed that I remember the two of us had the idea and said to the director, uh, or it was like in a meeting the day before we said, when you go shoot senior in the hospital bed, shoot something that we could cut into the end of the, that was when we had the idea for old man. And we were like, shoot something you can cut in so that we could play something at the end. Um, and, and cut to senior at the end. So we could really make the point about these fathers, um, and their relationships and the effect that, uh, fathers could have. So, I think that's the story within the story, sort of why we wanted to write about that stuff. And Theo had a lot of stuff from his own life that he was able to think about and put into the script that I think really elevates yeah. the material. Theo was just coming off of um, the the show Power, which so many people love. He'd been working on that show for a couple of years and came off of that show and joined us in our writer's room. And it's been a great fit. He'll, he'll be, uh, continuing on with us as we go forth. And then, um, you know, when you talk about all these themes and thematics in the episode, we, we could move right into Adam Bernstein, the director of this episode, because talk MVP. about MVP. Yeah. Talk MVP. about a consummate, a consummate MVP. pro. Adam just, oh boy. Hold wow. On. It sounds like your dog got in on the MVP chat. Yeah. That was amazing. This Sandy. is a. Uh, Great yeah, work, Sa Sandy. Sandy's an Adam Bernstein fan. Adam Bernstein uh, came aboard our show last season. And I have to say, he's an elite. This, this is an elite television director. This is the kind of person who is able to take apart uh, a script like a master butcher takes apart a porcine animal, if I could speak like one of our characters <laughs> for a second. And he knows how to debone that thing and plate it and serve it to you just how you want it. And um, man, I, if Adam Bernstein could come direct half a season, we'd, we'd have him direct half a season. Yeah, the amazing thing about him is, is he sees the shots linked together in his head and he so, he, so he maps and shoots it in a way in his head during prep. And it makes him incredibly economical. Like he'll go to the sets and the locations many times after the sort of official meetings have happened. And he's got an incredible, very original visual style. Though when he comes, he sticks to the style of our show and adds his own thing in. So 
it's sort of a furtherance of the style of the show. It's not jarring like, hey, what happened to the show? But yet it's got like this flavor and originality that's all his. And he's he does it with this incredible economy. It's just true mastery, really, from, you know, it's talent plus incredibly hard work and all the experience he's had doing it for many years. A lot of the time, TV directors are solving problems. You're on a set, you have limited time. Uh, it turns out the wall you thought could move where you're going to put the camera can't move and they have to solve the problems. And uh, a really good TV director is able to solve those problems and make their day and and solve their problems without letting people know that it got dicey and keep the actors moving forward. A brilliant TV director not only solves those problems, but comes in with four different plans for anticipating whatever the problems could be. And that's what Adam that's what Adam Bernstein is able to do. And um, what a joy to work with him. He just makes our job much easier because we're we're we know that what's happening on the set um, is going to be is going to be handled uh, perfectly. And he's confident enough that if we walk on a set and we're like, hey, we were thinking that maybe this character would be in this sort of a position, he can easily say, oh, I see why that makes sense, and 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 shift and incorporate into his ideas. So um, yeah, a plus for Adam Bernstein. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, on the billions. Um, should we go to, uh, should we talk about a cruise superstar? Absolutely. On this one, um, you know, we could have picked really any, any episode to talk about this one, but it seems like a great time to do it on this. We wanted to talk about our costumers and the wardrobe department. Eric Damon, who has been in charge of this from the the beginning of the series. He came in uh, right as we started shooting episodes in the second episode. Um, has an amazing feel. He He's a man of consummate style. And even though it probably kills him to put some of these traders into like fleece vests and khaki, yeah. he, he knows that it's not about sort of dressing them the way he would want to dress them. It's about making them look right for the world and creating the world through the costumes and telling the story. And that's what he does amazingly well. You know, he's got the proper power suits for the power people. Um, the, the actresses look incredibly formidable and serious and stylish. Axe looks like, you know, he's got all the money in the world and doesn't give a shit, which is exactly what Axe is when it comes to his clothing. You know, this is a guy who has a full understanding of how to do it, but beyond just knowing the sort of artistic piece, there's a huge manager, a managerial piece to organizing tons and tons of costumes, clothes, changes, different days, yes. shooting out of order, dressing the background. And Eric has put together this incredible team, including um, Jen O'Brien, who was like his, his second in command for several years before she actually took over this year as Eric went on to um, a different project. Well, in fact, this was his last episode and that's her, she started the next one, right, D? I believe so, yeah. Eric Damon um, sort of came to fame in the costuming world by doing Gossip Girl, which obviously became a cultural sensation. You know, millions of people started dressing like those characters. And when the show came, came up to reboot, they came back to him. And we thought it was only fitting to sort of say, you know, you've done so much for us and left us in great hands, you know, go with God and go back to that show and, and do the reboot with them. And, and, you know, Jen came in and took over seamlessly and it's been, you know, so easy to work with her. The rest of the team 
we can shout out Lauren, Maria, Christina, Stephanie, Kim. You know, there's not a weak link in the bunch. Everybody does such a great job. Full um, on, full on kick ass, uh, full on kick ass crew in the costume department. And as you said, Eric, I would say Eric's contribution over the five years of the show is easy to um, underestimate because, uh, as you say, we put these guys in fleece sometimes, but but I think Eric is so crucial to the style, feel, and just flavor of Billions that... um, I really salute the guy. Well, it's yeah, been a joy you know, to get to work with him. And there's something else that that they all do so well, which is often when when a guest star is coming in or even a main cast member who's just joining, the first touch they may have with the show, like sort of after yes. us, can often be with the, with the wardrobe department. They go in to get measured and fitted and try stuff on. And often tensions are high. Time could be short. The person could have a lot on their plate it may seem like a giant pain in the ass to them. And they walk in and are greeted with such kindness and they're given such comfort and confidence about how they're going to come off that they immediately relax into the experience that the show is going to be a great time for them. And, you know, these people are like the ambassadors of the show in a way. And they set an incredible tone that puts all, all the actors at ease and makes everybody's job just go smoothly. Perfectly said. I couldn't say it any better. Let's get into, you know, on Twitter, we get hit with this all the time. People asking us about all these different references and what we're talking about and why we were thinking about various things. So uh, and then we can talk about the music uh, after that, because uh, there's music stuff I definitely want to talk about. And then, you know, we, we got some pretty heavy guest cast that we can get into as we lead into our special guest. Oh, for yeah. The episode. Let, let's do that. Yeah, we can blaze through some of these. I mean, we can just like name check a couple and then there are a couple that might want to be unpacked. One I'm looking at in particular, which I know you're going to want to unpack, but uh, we got a Tony Stewart reference. Thrilled to get the Tony Stewart in there. And, and, and uh, I think we all understand uh, why we would put that in. I would say that was a great one because we originally put a reference in there that was more familiar to the show. Um and then uh, we switched it out for the Tony Stewart. I remember wanting to do one that wasn't exactly like one we'd done before. So we just slid from one of our normal sports like boxing over to NASCAR and, and seamlessly, then, I think. And then and it, the incomparable Dave Mustaine is mentioned in this For a episode. brief period, for one month of my life, I was partners with their manager. And uh, I got to know Dave and I. he's just been through a, a real tragedy in his life. He, he lost a sister, but... Uh, Dave Mustaine is an amazing figure and, and, you know, part of two of the biggest, most important heavy metal bands of all time, really important on Metallica's first record, really important on there being a Metallica. And then when he got, um, kicked out of the band, he, his fuck you was to start Megadeth, one of the biggest bands in the world. And, um, and weirdly, Dave, I think you were a Megadeth fan before I was actually, when you were in just one really angsty period of your life, you loved peace cells. I remember that you loved Peace Cells before I was super hip to it. And then, <laughs> then I got into it. Um, That's fun. That is one of the great pivots, by the way, to leave one band and then start another iconic band. That's yeah, not to start easy another to band do. that's just the only band bigger in that area is Metallica. And and he's still Megadeth. And and um, I really like Dave's been through it a lot and he's documented it and stuff. And um, we've shouted him out a number of times on Billions and um, 
And it was great because Theo wrote that line and it's mm -hmm. a line that you would just think I wrote. And, mm -hmm. um, but Theo wrote that. It was aware of it. And I remember reading that and being like, Theo can write the show. If you can yep. find a way to do a good Dave Mustaine reference, um, <laughs> you can probably write the show. I mean, not now. Now it's been done. <laughs> yes. Don't do it again now. Um, then a couple of movies, Bad Lieutenant. That was a movie we watched a lot back in the day. Uh, Ex Machina, an incredible movie, much more recent, but Alex Garland, what a great filmmaker. And, and, and for, 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 for The Ringer, I mean, we got a George Bland. I mean, the fact that we got George Blanda in there for George me. George Blanda, yep. Well, um, if you were our age, like George Blanda, when you were growing up, that, that football card of George Blanda, because you would look at it and be like, wait, he was a kicker and a quarterback? The most points I, ever? But I think he was like 50 when we were 10. I know. He, and he was still playing. It was That's odd. A, he, he played 25 seasons. I mean, incredible. 25 NFL seasons. <laughs> it's how come nobody's made the 10? Where's Jason Hare when you need him? Let's make a 10 part George <laughs> Blanda series. I think everyone's ready for it. I agree. Five at QB, five at kicker. Oh, I know the one you thought I wanted to talk about. Yeah. Uh, just to be clear, Stevie Wonder, not uh, Stevie Wonder, absolutely can't see. He's blind. And, uh, <laughs> I don't, I just want people to understand that, that this- You sound like you're his doctor. Well, this conspiracy theory uh, online drives me absolutely insane. Uh, you're talking about one of the greatest musicians who ever lived. The guy can uh, play every instrument, sing, perfect pitch. And it just so happens that he, the man can't see. And uh, we just wanted to make it clear on, uh, uh, on the show here that uh, we're, we're, we stand with Stevie. Good, good. One more movie. There was a Dog Day Afternoon quip in there, which was fun at Aspiros. And then there was like, you know, one of the weirdest sort of compound shout outs ever. First half being Megan Rapino, the incomparable um, soccer player from, from the U.S. women's team. And then um, Murakami, the writer. And this is the one that I figured you'd have a lot to say about because I, I believe he's, he's your favorite writer. You know, even present company included, painfully enough. Well, yes, of course. I do think Murakami is the greatest, uh, our greatest living novelist. Sometimes I say our greatest living novelist under uh, 75 because our dear friend Lawrence Block is 80 and goes pound for pound with um, Murakami. But I do think if, if, if people haven't read uh, Haruki Murakami, it's really not a waste of your time to go and read Norwegian Wood or Kafka on the Shore or the nonfiction book, What I Talk About When I Talk About Running. And uh, Wendy has long been a Murakami fan. She's read him throughout the series. There have been Murakami books by her bedside. Yeah, fun shout out. Um, what about guest cast? There's, there's great guest cast in this episode. Oh, it's, it's a great Wendy Malik starts us off, right? Yeah. Talk about somebody that we've been watching forever, just wondering if there was a way we could work with her. She showed up and just like fit right into the show. I mean, I just can't wait to try to get her back in the show. I mean, everybody on the show, come. everybody on the show fell in love with Wendy Malik. Like all anybody wanted to do is hang out with her, hear her stories and watch her work. She was incredible. What a professional. And then there's a gentleman and he's, he's, such a part of the show and such a part of our lives that he's almost not even, I mean, he's not a guest, he's more family, but we may as well throw him in as guest cast. Alan Havey is Carl Allard. Uncle Al. Yeah. A hundred percent. Brian, um, first encountered him when he was like an 18 or 19 year old kid. And Alan was doing stand up, 
and came back from the club going, I just saw the funniest comedian ever. You guys struck up a friendship. And, uh, you know, he's been a regular in this for several seasons now, and we love what he does. Yeah, Alan Havy crushes it on the show um, as Carl Allard. And it is true, Dave, um, you and I spent a lot of time with Alan when we were in our early 20s and actually 20s, 30s, 40s, now 50s. He's never been out of our lives since we met him at that young age. Like, because, yeah, if I was 19 when I met him, I mean, you would have met him the next year. So, mm -hmm. and then we all started um, hanging around. And yeah, he's terrific on the show. Glad you brought him up. Yeah. Um, Patty Darbinville came back to play Axe's mom, Laurel. She's fantastic. Um, you mentioned Akili McDowell earlier, I think. He's, you know, great as Savion. Frank Grillo and uh, Juliana Margulies once again. And we cannot forget in a quick but impactful short visit, Toby Leonard Moore. I really wanted to talk. I'm so glad you brought this up. I mean, you can't call Toby Leonard Moore guest cast. He's an original, regular, crucial cast member. He is. Billions OG, but, you know, hasn't been with us for the last couple episodes. And, uh, you know, it was just, I, I love this idea when it was birthed in the room, the idea that he'd have a wordless but, you know, powerful moments. And, you know, there were some questions raised maybe by the networker or somebody else involved going like, well, if he's going to come back, don't you think? And we were like, look, it either has to be like a five-page aria or nothing, no words at all. And that's where this one landed. I'm thrilled with what he brought. I'm thrilled with that scene. Both guys played it perfectly. And I got to say, I got to say, Toby Leonard Moore gave so much to the show, you know, um, it's a kind of thankless role in a certain way to be that guy who has to, in the beginning, be um, a little bit behind the beat as the two sort of alpha guys are, are fighting. But Co Toby carved out this place for himself as this conflicted, heroic figure who was doomed by his own trusting, his, his, the, his trusting nature and his ambition doomed him in this world of the show. And man, Toby just delivered every time. There was never anything we asked of him that he hesitated on and never anything that he did less than just yeah. incredible I mean, work. Yeah, you frame it so well. And and the audience really picked up on like that nobility, that tragic nobility that he had going. And he was like a fan favorite for years. But, you know, as shows grow and mature, these wrenching choices have to be made in order to keep things like happening at the right dramatic pitch. And, you know, he understood that. And, you know, I, you said it was a thankless role, but in, in some ways it was, but I, I think that he was so recognized because we, we can't yes. say any details, but he has gone on to work with a legendary director in, in a major movie that we can't wait to see. Well, yeah, it's more that, that the quandary that Connerty's in is sort of thankless and impossible. Toby did great incredible work. And yes, I agree with you has been, was, was recognized for and rewarded, uh, for it. Dave, before we go on to the remaining guest cast and bring in our guest, Ava Victor, I do want to hit a couple of music things real quick because there's a song people might not recognize that has a really big spot in the episode, which is the song devil by the Westies yeah. uh, led, led by the great Michael McDermott. And, um, it's, it's a phenomenal song and McDermott sings the shit out of it. And he's a great songwriter. We borrowed his name for the main character in Rounders. Yes, Rounders came up. You can drink. And um, 
we uh, we love Michael and and the song just elevates that scene so much. And and then I, I really do also want to just talk about the fact that Neil Young was kind enough to give us um, Let Us Use Old Man. And uh, it's one of the greatest Neil Young songs. Neil Young's one of the greatest artists who ever lived. It's funny, during during this during this pandemic time, I've been listening to more Neil Young than any other time in my life. I listen to him every day. And uh, man, the guy was so wise and is so deep. And um, we wrote him a personal letter explaining how we wanted to use the song and why. And uh, the next day we got word that he'd approved us for using it. And Dave, I remember when we got the idea to put the song in knowing, okay, we have an end to this episode that's going to elevate. And yeah. man, does it elevate. Oh Jesus. yeah. I mean, it's like the uh, the Reese's peanut butter cup um, effect or something. Like we had this great footage and we had this brilliant song, but when you slap them together, something magical happens. And then one more, which is the opening song, Walk in Jerusalem. Um, that's one of those songs that like when we, I sent it to you during this, I sent that song to you during the summer, like before- on the started. playlist. Yeah. Have we talked about it? How have we talked about how how um you know you make these lengthy playlists during the in-between seasons? And I actually make pretty lengthy ones too, but not as voluminous as yours, where songs that seem right or evoke yeah. different kinds of emotions or sonically do something interesting that that might be used all get put yeah. onto a Spotify playlist and all the editors and post-production people get access to that so they can start like knocking it around in their subconscious too. And yeah. And then, but then sometimes there are ones like, I'll tell you, Walk in Jerusalem is one. When I heard that, I sent it to you like separately, like I texted you. And I was like, you got to hear this song. It's going to, we got to, uh, because I, I was like, so there was something spooky and weird about that song that I was like, I, I feel like this can open an episode. I remember sending it to you. You listened, you were like, oh yeah, that's going to work. And then, yeah, then it showed up and it was perfect for this spot in the thing. It's weird. It only happens a couple of times. Um, a couple of once or twice a season where just out of, uh, out of pocket, one jumps out. The, like, I think the last thing that happened was that, um, I wish I was your mother's song in season three, where like out of the total, no specific attached to it. It was just like sent the song because I was like, there's something. And, and I really feel like this Mark Cohn song, um, with the blind boys of Alabama added, don't you think it added something to the sense of potential doom? Well, it feels like a hymnal about death and like going to meet your maker. And, you know, so it plays really as counterpoint to this little idyllic moment of this baby toddling around, but then obviously it turns dark and then you feel like, oh no, you know, the, yeah. the something final is happening here for this and, character. And, 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 and it's another, just a great example for people. So like, when Dave, when when Theo and, and we conceived of the opening, we definitely wrote Chuck Sr.'s playing with the baby and that song is playing. Like that stuff was written. Mm -hmm. But Adam Bernstein found this series of shots and this camera vantage point when you first see the baby walking across and then Sr. walking across. And that's what the director brings. In other hands, that camera could just be in front of them or could be high or could be, there's a million ways you could shoot that and not get the effect that Bernstein gets with by putting those elements together in the way he and the editor, Louis Chaffee, together. But th that effect is because the director had a vision that, um, and, and he didn't have a vision that subjugated our vision. He had a vision to how to take what we wanted to do and platform it and, and set it up. And I, I find that amazing. Yeah, it was a full expression of it. It 
really exciting. Um, you're just so happy when Adam comes along and you does are. something like that. All right, should we bring in our special guest? Let's do it. The last uh, sort of guest cast, but but really, uh, maybe that doesn't exactly fit, but it is a special guest, the incomparable Ava Victor. Hey, Dave, so this is exciting. Let's, this is this is exciting. We feel so lucky that this person joined our show this year and made her debut uh, on Showtime in episode number five here, and that is the great, hilarious Ava Victor. Ava, welcome. Yeah, thank you for having me on the podcast, as well as the show. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, the, the, obviously the show is one thing, but the podcast is the real honor. I never knew I could do it, and I'm doing it. You are. You're doing it. Yes, you're doing the show amazingly well, and so far the podcast is off to a great start. <laughs> I think she's crushing the podcast so far. Yeah, Dave. yeah. Keep out of the park. Me, if I if I fuck up the podcast, you can just say you're out. You're out of the podcast. <laughs> That's okay. I accept. Ava, uh, did you get to watch the episode? I did. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen myself like that before. I, I obviously had like a great deal of panic. And then I was also really grateful at the same time. And I think I, I think I can't ever watch myself again is what we've come to. That's, you know what? That's fine. That's a valid way to go. A lot of very seasoned actors take that approach. So yeah, that's legit. because I'm a very seasoned actor. I just don't, I'm very seasoned and I don't see, I, I don't have any ego. So What's the point in watching, you know? <laughs> well, you know what? This is this is a case where we became aware of you on social media, Instagram, loving your hilarious posts. And we had a meeting and we knew that you'd be really great for something in the show. So we wrote the character. And when you came aboard, we felt totally confident that you were going to pull it off. And I got to say, that was confirmed like right after you shot the editor who was putting this episode together, a seasoned guy, Lewis, Lewis Chiaffi, calls us out of nowhere and he goes, what the hell is going on with this character? I've never seen anything like it. She's popping off the screen. And we were like, okay, we're going to be good. This really? is working well. Yeah, Absolutely. It was a nice Lewis, thank you, Lewis. <laughs> no, but um, it, what, what, uh, had you had this, so, so you do these, you know, you became well-known for doing these front-facing videos and um, that you write, direct, put together, you know, you put together yourself. And it's funny because someone could think that they're, and um, they're just sort of dashed off, but anyone who makes things knows that you work at these things. They're not just dashed off, they're crafted um, and they're supposed to appear a certain way. What, what, are, what were your ambitions as you started doing that? Were you hoping, because it's not just us, I know other people have reached out, cast you, other things are happening for you. Was it strategic or was it like, hey, I want to work on this art and if it leads to something else, great. Like, how'd you think about it? Well, I'm a very strategic player. Um, no, <laughs> I started huh. making them because I was feeling, I had just quit a job and I was feeling really creatively unsatisfied and really like lonely. And so I started making them and I was going through a breakup. Shout out to breaking up. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I just started making them like so much. So like I, I really put a lot of myself into it in a way that was potentially kind of not okay or unhealthy. And it was amazing. I, I definitely, I mean, it, it was crazy. And I, and I 
it does take a lot. Thank you for saying that because it does take a lot of like work to put them together into and it is painful when you have a vision for something and then it doesn't become it or when you have a vision for something and then it becomes it like there is like this deeply satisfying thing to know that that was all because of your freakish hands like tapping away at stuff to make it happen yeah well can you can you tell us a little bit about the process like you know do you do you write it do you rehearse it a lot before do you do lots of retakes do you lay it down in one like how do these things come to be totally i think for a while i was just kind of fucking yeah am i allowed to say fuck i have to be yeah. like yes Yes. Okay. I, <laughs> I was like fucking around my phone and doing all these takes of different stuff and sort of like making them up on the spot. So in general, it's mostly like improvised. And I usually have an idea that I sit on for a bit and then make it when I make it, I have a couple backlogged ideas of what I'm going to say, but it all comes out. I, I say things over and over and over again, then choose a take where I look the prettiest. That's true. <laughs> nice. um, and, <laughs> and usually that's the way it feels best it feels best when I'm improvising it and then I get to edit it together. And when I get to do a bunch of takes and work at my own pace, very leisurely, um, I've had to turn in scripts for them before. And it's always felt less fun to shoot once I know what I'm going to say, because I think that the joy is sort of discovering it along the way, not to sound like, well then, no, that's right. No, no. In this context, you can sound that way. We all sound that way. We're a bunch of circus performers. We're all, we all join the circus. We all are trying to do this art. I'm like sweating and, on the tightrope. It's like so hard. Yeah. No, right. I mean, we're all, but, but I mean, look, you, you, we all have to get comfortable using that goofy language to take seriously this, in, this stuff that we do get to do. And, and sometimes it, it might feel like, a certain way to talk about it, but like, you might as well, why not right. here? You're doing it. What, how did you keep the spontaneity? So I understand that battle yet. The performance you lay down as, as, as this character, as Ryan has this kind of spontaneity. I mean, we did sneak a couple of, which you never mentioned us, but I mean, we did sneak, sneak right into your first scene. One of your kind of like taglines of your own self, which is Wait, like which? being um, the whole idea of being not being emotionally prepared for the situation. Oh yeah, I know, I know, <laughs> I know. I think like I was when I read it, I was like, this can't be what they thought I could do because she's so cool. Like, <laughs> I I was just like, okay, her name's Ryan. Like, what am I supposed to do with that? I'm I'm gonna explode having to say like to pretend my name's Ryan. Like that just is fundamentally not a part of who I am. Um, but <laughs> but I do think, and I. And I think I, I appreciate the moments when I know it's for me. And I am very flattered by the Gal Gadot moment. Sure. I <laughs> yes. sort of live on that for the rest of my life. So, Well, Winston has a big crush on Ryan. There's nothing anyone can do about that. I know. It's so funny. And Will was, can I tell you my story about Will? I ran into yes. Will at a bar like, a week before I went in to shoot and he recognized me and pulled me over. Did I say, Win did I say Winston? Did I say, Will? No, you said, Will, who played, yeah. Will this is, the yeah. Will Roland, yeah. the actor who plays Winston on the show. Yeah. 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 He pulled me over and was like, Oh, we're so excited to have you. And I was like, Oh my God, thank you. And he was so nice. And then at the read through, I was so nervous. I almost shit my pants. Honestly, I almost threw up and he led me to the set and showed me around. And it was like, he was my like, leader through everything. He was my guide. And then it's really developing that we are ultimately in this really intense, horrible, 
passionate dynamic. I can't there's say more. a real dynamic. No, there's a real <laughs> dynamic at play uh, for sure. And, um, yeah, that's but, but keep... let's not, I, I don't want you to slide away from the question that Brian asked because I'm yes. totally curious about it too. So on our show, it's not an improv show, right? You know, you, you, um, came in very professionally, super prepared. You had your lines cold, but how did you, it's so different from the way you do your own thing. Like, how did you keep it fresh and make it seem like you're saying it for the first time? when we were in a setting where you had to do it over and over. Yeah, you did. I don't know if I did that. I was panicked. I don't remember. I don't remember doing it. And I, I mean, I will say to walk in and do a scene with Maggie and Asia off the bat was one of the most intimidating things. I've. It it was the most intimidating thing I've ever done. And they were both really like really kind and, and made me feel really comfortable. And I don't feel well, I, I, I don't see, I, I, I can't look at myself and say, oh, nice job, Ava. So I don't, I, I know what you're being nice and now I'm being insane, but that's just how, it, how I can't well, see it. Well, that's because oh, yeah, you're correct. not a crazy, you're not a, uh, you're not like um, an insane person and anyone who would just watch themselves. Act, it's really hard like to learn how to watch yourself act. I would think you have some ability to, to watch yourself because you have to direct yourself in the front facing things and in the ones you did for Comedy Central. Like you've, you have had to sort of understand the effect that you have in these performed pieces, right? So you have to develop some kind of objectivity. And then, and then when, since we're the ones who have to have that objectivity, well, you have to do is come in and be Ryan. And then it's to us to make sure that the performance is what we want it to be. Do you know what I mean? For us to pick how it should fit into the whole, that's actually not your, pro- you know what I mean? It's not your right. concern. You don't have to worry about that. Totally. And Asia gave me the best advice. I think they learned from someone else, maybe a teacher or I don't remember, but they told me that every take is a rehearsal and the editor gets to choose which one is the performance. And that made me feel so good. And I was like, right, it's out of my hands. It's really out of my hands. I don't get to decide what this looks like. And that, that should, and that like, you never had the control in the way that you're used to. So just you don't have to do that. You can just do this part. Yes. I, yeah. I love, I love that, um, that kind of like veteran pressure releasing advice that you hear like that once in a while. Like I remember Clooney when we were on the set of oceans 13 once said his approach to auditioning back in the day when he was a young actor, his, his way to take the pressure off himself was when I go in, I don't have a job. So if the worst thing that happens is I walk out and I still don't have a job, but what if I get a job? And that's the way he sort of like flipped it and didn't feel like, oh, I'm going to blow it. I'm going to blow it. And that, that from Asia is so brilliant. You know, the idea that like, you're just doing it and you know, there's no pressure on you and the editor has to figure it out. Yeah. Well, it, it, Dave, it's like when, um, when I was in Michael Clayton, that, that realization I had, I was so nervous because I hadn't been in a movie before, even though I'd been around them and made them, but I realized as soon as we started, I was like, what if I fuck up? And then all of a sudden I realized, no, it's Tony Gilroy's fault. He hired me. It's the director. He's the, it was, it's his mistake. It's not my mistake. I just showed up. I think we said that to Ava. Did we tell that to you? Maybe. I mean, it is ultimately your bad judgment for putting me in it. So. Right. It's It's our fault. And we're thrilled. We're thrilled with it. Uh, But I want to go back to the other question I asked you because then we, we jumped on it. Um, 
So you started making these videos, which was to say, did you expect or hope that this sort of thing would happen from the videos? But it, so, so talk about that, how that all started happening for you. And right. I mean, I'd never, I, I don't think I dreamt past being staffed on a late night show, which is an incredible job. And a lot of my friends have that job. And I truly, for the life of me, tried to get that job for so long. And I do not, I couldn't do it. And I'm so like in awe of my friends who can do it. But I was, I had turned in all these writing samples and packets for different shows. And I was like feeling so out of control. Um, and I, and I, I mean, I went to school for acting, which Right. doesn't feel like a credit because it's not but I did like I loved doing like the Greeks in college and I loved like doing the comedy plays in school and I I don't think I'd let myself get past like uh being staffed as a writer because that was what in my that was what all my friends were doing and the way that this opened up my even just like my view of what I could do Yes. is the has been the most profound part of it all because i mean people being people asking me now what do you want to make what do you want to do and i'm like well i want to write something that i can say and i want to you know act in people's stuff that i think is amazing and i want to write for people who i think are amazing and i i didn't have the scope in my head that i could do those things and and i mean i really still don't feel like i can be an actor but this has been <laughs> so amazing and and me trying to do it and i have so much i actually have so much respect for the job because i i'm such a control freak and it really is there's like a release to it and a trust to it that i had no idea i didn't really understand was a part of it and i mean here i am sweating again but that's it's 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 all amazing and i'm i'm very grateful for the things that are in the works because of my videos um right things that have happened because of them it's just it's weird it's bizarre and it's cool no i mean it's it is it's it's what i love about it and i know dave you feel the same way I mean, it is all the stuff that we talk about all the time which is like you without calculating it do this work that that you feel like you were somehow put here to do the work you have to do the scary thing and then like all sorts of positive shit can happen as a result of it which is what happened for you like we did just see your videos we started talking about them we started thinking about how sort of like the, the, what it would be like to have a, a character like that. We wanted a character like that in the world. And we've done this a few times where we then wrote the character specifically for you. You know, we had that meeting with you and wrote the character for you. And it's great when it all comes together. I mean, that like was so this. cool. That meeting was amazing. And I, I've read The War of Art like a thousand times since you gave it to me. So thank you for that. And well, Dave, that was a big move. Say, what I did after the audition, which I, I don't want to talk about in a way that's crazy, but I do think I didn't do that well in the audition, but that's okay. And I went back, I, I was at work at Comedy Central and I went to do the audition and then I went, got back to Comedy Central and did a very dramatic collapse onto the ground in front of my friends and <laughs> forced them to ask me like 12 questions about how bad, like ask me what went wrong. Cause I was like on the floor, collapsed, upset, crying. It was, I'm, I'm, I'm insane. But didn't you that hear was, that day or the next day you got the part? I heard in like four days. Yeah. And I, but I think we told you that that wasn't really an audition. That was just that for, as far as we were concerned, that was just something that we could show the network. Oh, and in but fact, that it makes was, it worse. That you makes didn't it believe worse. it. Sure. I could see that. Because oh, also, then if you say no, it's like, oh my God, <laughs> you know? You, you know what I realized too, Dave, 
it might be useful for people in an audition context because the last read we did, remember, we said to you, because you hadn't done that much of this kind of acting where you were doing something from that someone else wrote, people from kind of far away from your world. The last take, we said, if on the couple of these lines, you want to just improvise just for the rehearsal, even though in, and for the audition. And that last take you did, we were like, where would you be posture-wise? And you just you just kind of fell into it then. And I think kind of found the character where the character met you. And it was great because we kept at it. I would say, yeah, your first, the very first read was a little bit like all of us. It was just a little stiff, us trying to find it. But it was a really good thing because we knew you could do it. So to be like, well, let's try again. Well, what if you approach it this way? And that last take was, it was great because we were just trying to get something we could show the network so they wouldn't think we were nuts, right? Because we're like, hey, there's this woman who makes these videos. She's never been in anything but we want to write like a real part for her. So we had to show them something. Right. You know what I mean? To get them to agree. And and that's all we were trying to do was actually like platform you, Um, which we hoped by the end you would have seen, but you didn't realize it even at the last. (laughs) At that point, I was so panicked. I was so upset and mad at myself. I, I don't even, maybe I relaxed into it because some part of my brain died. Yeah, that's possible. Okay. That's that's really um I think that's really uh possible. But I think the the Gal Gadot's line is that in this episode or the next one? It's in this one. Oh good. Okay, great. So people have seen that already. Don't worry, I would never spoil. Okay, good. Just making sure. Yes, Gal Gadot's quirky. Such a written written and said before the Gal Gadot imagined video, sir. I will say it really couldn't have lined up better. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> It because has. now Gal Gadot is my quirky sister. Right. Oh, right. Well, Dave, I don't. I can't think of a better place to end uh, than on uh, Ava Victor throwing down the gauntlet to Gal Gadot. <laughs> Great well, seeing you. Thank you for having me. This was fun. All right, everybody. You can find Ava on both Instagram and Twitter under your names. Say your names on each thing. Yes, they're impossible to pronounce out loud. That's why I like them. On Twitter, it's Ava and her IUD. And on Instagram, it's Victor Ava's Secret as as an homage to Victoria's Secret. But I need to change it. So I don't know. <laughs> I mean, don't change it now. You have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of followers. I would not advise changing it now. <laughs> um, and thanks for listening to the podcast, everybody. We will be back next week. You can find David and me on Twitter. And uh, next week, another Behind the Billions. All right. Thanks, everyone. See you.